All right, we'll be reading Acts 13, and we'll be starting in verse 13. Oh, yeah, you, you may stand, too. Uh, now, when Paul and his party set sail from Patmos, they came to Perga, Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 400 years, 450 years, until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. For this man's seed, according to the promise, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me whose sandal whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to their fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are, you are also my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no more corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though you were once to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear 
the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. You may be seated. Good morning. We've been going through Hebrews 11, and we reached verse 32, and took note that, uh, as the author says, and what more shall we say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. So we decided to try to, to uh, or our attempt at covering that. For, for four of these fellows uh, this month. And so this we have taken this month to tell of Gideon, Samson, and Samuel. And now, this morning, David. I want us to consider an, a, an additional verse, which applies to both Samuel and David. And that is Hebrews 13.7, which says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. <clears throat> now, I think generally this would not be the, the uh, meaning of this verse, but if you were an Israelite in David's day, this would very much apply, wouldn't it? David rules over them. And he speaks the word of God. In his case, often through Psalms, a man of faith. So we're going to consider his faith and consider the outcome of his conduct this morning. May God speak to us through his word today and help us to be instructed and encouraged by David's example of a life of faith as we consider the outcome of his conduct and May God help us be motivated with greater understanding to live our life of faith, following David's example of walking in all the light that he had. Please join me in prayer. Father, I just want to briefly come to you in prayer. Acknowledge that our desire is to humble ourselves before your word, and receive what you desire to speak. We see that you have in your word, especially brought this out about David, that he uh, was one who loved your word, wanted to know what you wanted him to know, wanted to do what you wanted him to do. We pray that this would instruct and motivate us today. And I pray that you would cause your word to go forth. Amen. So, probably a fair question here, uh, which I know I addressed that a little bit in the email earlier in the week and last Sunday, but uh, still, why Acts 13, verse 13 through 49? when it just mentions David a couple of times. It's an address of Paul uh, in their first missionary journey at the first synagogue they were in, speaking to Jews. Well, there's a a few reasons. One might be that it's a lot shorter than the 61 chapters of David's history. Stretching across four Old Testament books, uh, not of history books, and not to mention the Psalms he wrote, about half of the 150. 
yes, much shorter. David's story and the man himself are complex. Perhaps this is not an exhaustive list, but uh, just made a short list of things that David was, roles that he uh, filled. He was a shepherd. He was a psalmist. He was a servant and a warrior, a king, a prophet, and even a priest of sorts. He did not hold the office, of course, but he fulfilled the role of intercessor. Because he had the heart to do so. From the time he is introduced in 1 Samuel 16, David was functioning in three or more of these roles simultaneously for pretty much the rest of his life. He's a busy man. And with all the history, uh, time would fail me as well to tell the story of David in detail. I do hope you've been reading through First and Second Samuel especially. Because the word of God is profitable for our souls. <clears throat> now this passage in Acts 13 uh, contains a very short summary of the long period of time, about a millennium, from the patriarchs through the judges to Samuel the prophet, which we covered last week. The short summary continues, introducing Saul in verse 21, and then David in verse 22. So I want to get to that here shortly. But I want to say now the, the real reason for choosing this passage, and it's really two halves, Half of the real reason is verse 22, and the other half of the real reason is verse 36. Though this is a, an address by Paul, and it's a great one, much to be learned, but uh, not too far back in going through Acts, we, we, we uh, went over this. And our, our focus today is David. So we're going to uh, look at, in particular, those two verses, because on those two verses... Uh, hang all the story of the life and faith of David. As you might pick up on some of the wording there, it's intentional. For though the man himself and his life story may be complex, his faith is as simple as Jesus said it was. The first and great commandment, and the second, which was very much like it, Be considering as we go through some things about David, remembering the first and great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And the second, like it, to love our neighbors ourselves. David exemplified this in his day. And God recognized it of him. And this passage here in Acts 13 uh, recounts that. We're going to just read 16 up through 22. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God. By the way, did you note throughout this, Paul kept saying that phrase, he kept tacking on that phrase. He would speak of men of Israel, sometimes men and brethren, but would always add, and you who fear God. Gentiles in their midst. There's a connection to David with that. So I wanted to alert your attention to that. Verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. As I mentioned before, he just covered about a thousand years, plus or minus, in those few verses. Afterward, they asked for a king. 
So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Quite a statement, isn't it? We're going to dwell there for a while because there's three parts there, as you can see. First is, I have found David. Okay, if you found David, that seems to indicate he was looking for something. Someone. But not so much maybe a personality like a name. But as we see in the rest of the verse, the description of what God was looking for. And it's set in contrast to Saul. Do you see that? After he had removed him, he raised up David for them, to whom he said, about whom he said, I have found David. Now, if you look, if you've read through a passage in, in First and Second Samuel, uh, you, I'm hoping you recognize some of the, and remember some of the details of that. They were very messy details. That 40 years of Saul was uh, a very long, drawn-out situation. But it was very early in his reign when God said this. He found it in David and raised him up as king. So what was God looking for? He says, I have found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So he's been searching for someone, first of all, who wants what he wants. I've been searching, and I found David, a man who wants what I want. A heart after my own heart and who will do all my will. Now that, the meaning of that, there's, there's multiple words that, where you could have it translated will. <clears throat> this one, just some other words that it means to, to give a give better feel for it is who will, who will fulfill my desires or do my wishes. Active volition. Maybe in short, you could just say to do what I say. That's especially meaningful given the contrast of Saul, isn't it? Who refused to do what God said. That's why he was removed. And he demonstrated this multiple times. Concerning God's searching, in 2 Chronicles 69, says these words, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. New King James, and, and other translations would say, whose heart is completely his. So you can see this is the very thing that God has been searching for in this situation. He's found in Saul someone not after his own heart, who only wanted to do his own will, who was stubborn and rebellious. David, unlike Saul, seemed to get it. He understood that God, to know God, is unspeakably wonderful. And that when you, and this is Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. We've said this before. It certainly bears repeating that when you delight in the Lord, when you want what he wants, then he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, if you hang on to your own desires, like Saul, it won't go well. And worse than that, God won't be glorified. God is glorified when we obey him. So that's what God was looking for, a man after his own heart. Someone who would do the Lord's wishes, he would... and that would be when the Lord says what those are. When he gives a command, then go for it. Be ready to do his will. So God chose David to be king at this time in history 
because he had some things in mind. He needed someone who would do what he said, who would do all my will. And he's been looking for someone whose heart was completely his, someone whose heart was loyal to him, and he found David. In contrast, Saul, who was king before him, was willing to say yes to being king, but not willing to say yes in his heart to doing God's will. After Saul had disobeyed God's specific command to fulfill his judgment on the Amalekites to wipe them all out, this was after this was a judgment pronounced. God had spoken. God's word gets accomplished. And it's a great honor to do his will. But when God commanded Saul to do his will, Saul came up with a better idea while claiming that he had fulfilled the mission. Samuel ended up saying this to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Saul was removed from being king because he would not obey the voice of the Lord. Uh, Jesus said to us, Luke 6.46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Principle is very much applicable right here today, isn't it? In contrast to Saul, David chose to say yes to God's choice of his calling and purpose in life, and yes to God's voice when he spoke because his heart was loyal to God because he wanted God's will to be done he wanted God to receive the glory due his name in Psalm 96.8 give the glory give the Lord the glory due his name bring an offering and come into his courts one of the most uh, familiar for everyone especially children. In David's life, is he took on Goliath. We're, we're not going to act that out or anything. i just tell you that up front. <laughs> we're looking at some other things. But when David took on Goliath, his zeal for God's glory was on display. And his confidence that the Lord would be with him fueled his faith. Do you remember his words? Goliath would show up and the whole rest of the army, all the grown men, backward. And David observes this and wonders, not just wonder why are they so afraid. It, he wasn't dwelling so much on that as what Goliath was doing, taunting the armies of the Lord, cursing, uh, blaspheming God. That riled him. Right there is the indication you see. It was this personal animosity. It was, how can you just listen for, the, for this to happen? How can we just watch or worse, run? He's defied God. So, little David, pretty, pretty small not sure what size or age. But he took him on. Because David believed that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In particular, who seek his glory. That's what, that's what David keyed in on. God needs to be glorified in this situation. He sought to give the Lord the glory to his name. That's when we first saw David's glowing heart for God's glory. But God saw it before that. It's interesting, that little homework assignment, if you do the math, how old was David when God first pronounced, I have found David? It's an interesting uh, contemplation there. 
There are several young people here today. I have some questions for you. The one we just touched on. Do you know how old David was when he faced uh, Goliath? Actually, when God called him to serve as king. Because that was even before he came and faced Goliath, remember? So, we're not told what his age is, but from what we can tell, we could say 12, 14, 16, something along those lines. The young man, considered pretty insignificant when Samuel showed up to anoint the next king. What was he doing at the time? Who can tell me? When Samuel came to Jesse's house and parading the, the tall, grown young men in the fields working. Now, Jesse had eight sons, but only seven was available to be anointed. So he was out in the fields taking care of sheep. Did that come with a lot of responsibility? Do you remember some of the things that David recounted when he faced Goliath? He faced some some real foes. Lion, bear. So, consider, had he been exercising his faith in God before he was called to greater responsibility? Had he been rejoicing and knowing and loving God even while nobody was watching except for the sheep? Had he been praying, worshiping, and praising God even while nobody was watching? Yes. He was already writing Psalms. Maybe Psalm 23 at some point. This was the secret of David's energetic faith. You could live that kind of life too. Young person. David was just a young man. While nobody is watching, what are you doing? David had relationship with his creator God and loved him. Rejoiced in the sheep, the fields, the stars, but mostly God himself. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can have that kind of life too for the Lord. Fathers, mothers, all of us, are we modeling relationship with God for younger ones? Are we modeling an energetic faith before those who are watching? Because they are watching. We know that we sometimes fail, don't we? What do we do when we fail? Remember Saul. He really went down the wrong path. But perhaps a lesser thing, you ever, you ever kind of done this or at least felt like it, you know, just, you know, we sometimes say just kicking dirt, that kind of attitude. We kick dirt from embarrassment. Maybe we could put other words to it, but I'm just going to pick that one. But embarrassment, isn't that a gentler word for wounded pride? Think of all the times that David poured out his heart to the Lord in the Psalms. What we need to do is run to the Savior and pour out our hearts to him. When things don't go well, and sometimes they don't, sometimes we fall, run to the Lord. This is David's wonderful example to us. Imperfect, yes. We'll look at some of that. Some of those times must have been when he realized he had blown it 
as a husband and as a father. He made a lot of bad choices in family relations. <laughs> one man, one woman. I mean, that's on our radar here. It was not on their radar there. Especially the attitudes of kings. It was worse than typical, way worse. David literally made a royal mess of his family and set the stage for the next generation. He himself, he made it far worse. Adultery with Bathsheba and the cover-up murder of Uriah, her husband. Can't get much worse than that. But it did. With the next generation. So, this brings us to a very difficult but very important question here. It's kind of like the proverbial elephant in the room. David loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. I'm making that connection here from, from what God proclaims about him. But in 1 Kings 15.5, it says, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. A very simple, kind way to to even say that. We can probably mention a few other things perhaps, but this was obviously a standout one that had to be mentioned. So, Note, though, that this is speaking of what he did. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except in the matter of Uriah. So this is what he did, not his heart for God and his glory. He did not walk perfectly. We don't either. Saul didn't either. If God says that he sees David's heart and it's a heart after his own heart, and that David has a heart to do his will, and this is the heart that he has been looking for, a heart that is loyal to him and will obey him, how do we resolve this? What The sin. Did he do all the Lord's will? This mentions at least one very glaring exception to that. So I want to just point to this difference again. This was regarding what David did, not his heart for God and his glory. What about our heart condition? Our sin condition will never be pleasant or easy to deal with, any more than David's. Isn't it fair to note, in fact, that he had less light than you and I do? I believe the example of Paul versus David can help here. David sinned, Saul sinned, we have sinned. But when Saul was confronted with sin, he denied it, twisted the truth, refused to repent. When David was confronted, he broke down, cried out, I've sinned. He looked to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness with all the light that he had. His heart was broken over his sin and he longed and cried out to be restored to fellowship with the Lord. He could not stand to be without the presence of the Lord in his life. You recognize that from Psalm 51? These aren't just words. When he cries for for the Lord to purify him, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That would have been the most devastating thing for for David. To no longer have the presence of God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. 
maybe only a little light compared to what we have now in the whole Word of God. But what he had, he was all in. So though wounded and battered and discouraged with the consequences of his sin, David continued to treasure and rejoice in the presence of God. Sin need not hinder that because Jesus has taken our sin. And even though with only a little light, David was looking forward to that. And he hungered like all the prophets to understand more. Ultimately, God has given us his perfect answer and perfect example. His own son of the seed of David, Jesus Christ, son of man and son of God, on the cross for our sins. Some verses from Romans 8. For whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? To some much diminished extent, David knew this truth, that God was for him. That's connected to his heart. He knew where to take his sin. But he knew that the one he took it to loved him. And he loved him in return. And had fellowship with him to the point where the most critical thing in dealing with his sin was crying out that he would not be without the fellowship with the Creator God, whom he loved. Very much connected with this, what God said his heart was. With lesser light, but with eyes of faith, David looked ahead from afar and believed what God had promised, and it sufficed. He believed. It says in Acts 2, verse 30 and 31, David being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. David believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so it is with us today if we believe and his one and only son. David was a man of faith. He was able to have confidence in God, that God was with him and for him. Because David was on the Lord's side, not the other way around. David was in it for God's glory. At the core of his being, that was the desire of his heart. God sees that. When that is the desire of our heart, he sees that and delights in it. He knew David wasn't perfect. He knows we aren't. He knew David had sinned. He knew he would continue to stumble. But he knew where to take his sin. David knew where to take his sin. Some verses in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Perhaps this was the situation he was in for that time when he was suppressing his sin. My bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. 
You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And then God speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. When our heart is set on God himself, on his glory and his satisfaction, the outcome is a robust faith that overcomes adversity and suffering, including from our own sins. In short, we endure to the end, regardless of the cost. That's what David did. What was the outcome of David's conduct? What was the outcome of his way of life? Did he overcome adversity and suffering, including from his own sins? Did he endure to the end? We turn to verse 36 now, where we get a the light of the word on toward the end of his life. Because <clears throat> God pronounces, verse 36, that David after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption in contrast to Christ, which is the main point of this message. But what we're looking here is uh, what was said about David is tremendous. And actually, I think it's helpful to see, there's some other translations, that, that that whole set of phrases there can... Grammatically, it can fit a couple different ways, and, they, and there's not a whole lot of difference between them, but I think it's helpful to read it this way. This is out of the ESV. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That same word, purpose, he served the purpose of God. Same word is used in Acts 2.23, when Peter says, speaking of Christ, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. God's master plan. David served that purpose of God in his own generation. And there's a lot of evidence for that. I want you to be encouraged with this thought. Our sin does not have to keep us from serving the purpose of God. It didn't. Even the, the horrendous sins that David sinned did not keep him from serving the purpose of God in his generation and to have this proclamation by the Holy Spirit over his life. Take heart. But note, not just take heart in a lighthearted way, but be motivated to do what David did, to have a heart after God, to serve the purpose of God in his generation, to have a heart to, to know, to understand what God is wanting to do and pursue it with everything, all his energies. This is how David lived. <clears throat> Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. I want to bring in now that David not only loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, but his neighbor as himself. And it was all connected to him serving the purpose of God in his generation. He was not just looking out for his own interests. <clears throat> Do you know that we can sometimes look out for others' interests according to our own definition, what that might be, or to, the, to an extent that we approve of or we limit? Take warning. That's exactly what Saul did when he proclaimed in front of Samuel, oh yes, 
I have obeyed the command of the Lord. Yes, I have fulfilled his mission. And Samuel says, then what about these bleeding sheep that I hear? And what about Agag? Because what, what that ends up being really is we're looking out for our interests when we fiddle with that. And Jesus exposes these attitudes in the religious leaders of his day. Wanting to do things in order to be seen. Remember the frequent words he would say, they have their reward in full. Because for one thing, they're they're not uh, seeing God as the one who rewards those who diligently seek him. Jesus showed us what true selfless interest in others was like when he said yes to the Father's will to take on human flesh and blood for us. When he said yes to the Father's will to take up a cross for us. When he said yes to the Father's will to take our sin upon his shoulders. In Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 4 that I read, it continues on now, reading 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. One of the things in the first command is to love God with all our mind. And in Christ, he, he gives us his mind. If we receive it, walk in it. And I found in this translation called uh, International Standard Version, which I, I know nothing about really as far as you know, the, the totality of the translation, but uh, beautiful text here as it takes verses 6 through 11 in Philippians 2 and puts it in poetry form because it was kind of that way to start with, with language. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In God's own form existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness, a servant's form did he possess, a mortal man becoming. In human form, he chose to be and lived in all humility, death on a cross obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, this matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knee of everyone should fall wherever they're residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord, while God the Father praising. This is the example and the Life poured out of our Lord and Savior. The true example of selfless interest. David wrote in Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That is the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. So that we can have his law written on our hearts and delight in God and his will. David lived a life exemplified by not shrinking back from self-sacrifice for God's glory to serve others. This was like Christ, as we just read in that Philippians passage. David was willing to suffer according to the will of God as well. He also suffered before reigning. Remember how many years he was hunted like a dog by Saul. But he suffered according to the will of God. He did not complain. He carefully held his men back from killing Saul when there was several opportunities for that. He was willing to suffer before reigning. There's a lot of ways in which David 
exemplifies Christ this way, typifies him, but also exemplifies him in attitude. He continued a life of sacrificial serving as he planned and designed and set aside massive amounts of materials for the temple that his son was to build. He accepted God's judgment that he would not be able to build it and threw his energies and skills into providing for God's continuing and increasing glory in the next generation. I want to read a couple of passages now from, and, and uh, you're welcome to, to turn along in here. There's several verses. This is in First Chronicles. First passage is in chapter 17. And just kind of maybe more quickly go through some some of the story to set the stage for the passage I'll read. After some time, uh, the wars calmed down and David was thinking about building the Lord a house. It was in his heart to do that. He spoke to Nathan the prophet about it. Nathan encouraged him, sure, do all this in your heart. But <laughs> that wasn't the Lord's idea. And the Lord let Nathan know that that night and said, and send him back to David. He said, no, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. Verse 4, I've not dwelled in a house ever. I've been dwelling in tents. In other words, I'm fine with that right now. <laughs> Have been all this time. No, that's not my plan for you. Here's my plan for you, David. I'm going to build you a house. And then he goes on, just pouring it on, all that he's going to do. Of course, a lot of it has to do with Christ, the seed, David. That's the house he's talking about when he's talking about the house that will be built and last forever, the kingdom that will never end. It's a wonderful passage. I really encourage you to read Chapter 17, chapter 22 especially. But I, I want to read part of this in chapter 17 because after, and I'll just start in verse 15. Well, 14. <laughs> verse 14. The end, that's kind of the end of, of God's prophecy over David. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. And that's speaking about Christ, seed of David. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David went in, and this is what I want you to get. The attitude, see the connection of the heart of David with what's been spoken about him in Acts 13 and, and, and throughout First uh, and Second Samuel. David went in and sat before the Lord. It's not so much talking about a, a, a posture, although he, he might have, but the, the significant meaning there is he tarried. Same way that you know, Joshua would tarry in a, in a tent of meeting. <clears throat> and he said this, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house? that you have brought me this far. Such humility here. And yet, this was a small thing in your sight, what you've done already, O God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come, and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. What more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant. He's acknowledging the, 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 the difficulty here, almost a disconnect. I don't understand how you can say this about me and plan this when you know who I am. Do we have a heart like that before God? 
This is the humility before God that counts. He's alone. He's just sitting before the Lord. Staggered by what has just been said. He speaks of God. There's none like you. He, he just speaks words of praise and glory to God. Speaks of who is like your people, Israel. Which, is, which has been said that the reason why they're special is because of God. Not because of themselves. God said that, right? So he ends... In verse 23, And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning this house, let it be established forever and do as you have said. So let it be established that your name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. Humility Faith, desiring God's glory. You hear that, all that right there? That's the heart of David that the Lord was speaking about. Yes, David knew who he was, and he knew that God knew who he was, for you know your servant. Sin is a serious issue, and in this life, if we're his, uh, there, will be, there will be judgments. But God himself has bore our sins. It's not a final judgment. It's the circumstances that we will reap what we sow circumstantially here. What a gracious God. And we ought to praise him forever for that. So now if we turn to chapter 22. I just want you to see, at least for some of these verses, that David, after having the Lord spoken to him, no, you won't build me a house. And he gave him one of the reasons. He's been a man of war and he shed blood. That includes Uriah. And he said, no, your son, Solomon, will build me a house. So what did David do? So, so that had to be so disappointing. His heart's desire is to glorify God. He wanted in a worse way to build that house. So what did he do? Hang his head? Mope? No. He threw his energies into doing everything to make it possible. I'm sorry, I uh, found that uh, chapter 22 in 2 Chronicles was not what I was looking for. 1 Chronicles. (laughs) So... Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints, and the bronze in abundance beyond measure, and cedar trees in abundance. <clears throat> now David said in verse 5, now David, now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, And the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparations for it. 
So David made abundant preparations before his death. He certainly did. If you look at the details of that, tremendous. And from his own, you know, personal wealth, just, <laughs> and was an example to the whole nation and, and so many then were, uh, were just giving willingly and with so much that the whole, everybody was just rejoicing and they recognized the grace of God that among them to, to bring that response. And so they just had a, had a great time eating and singing and just over what the Lord had done. David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies around. His name shall be Solomon, for I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you, and may you prosper and build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. Only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding and give you charge concerning Israel that you may keep the law of the Lord. So, <clears throat> there's two examples from, from First Chronicles are, are incredible. That David's humility before God when God prophesied about his house and then his, his willing heart and tremendous energy in preparing to build a house. These, these typify uh, our time. You know, Christ has come and we're soon approaching the end where the kingdom will be established forever as promised. Actually, it's already here, but these prophecies are going to be accomplished. So David continued a life of sacrificial serving as he planned and designed and set aside all these materials. He accepted God's judgment that he would not be able to build it. And he poured his energy and skills into providing for God's continued and increasing glory in the next generation. And God is not ashamed to be called David's God. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He calls each one of us to have that same heart that we saw in David. To love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, ourselves, as David did. When our heart is set on the glory of God, the Lord sees. In that verse in Hebrews 13, 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. I pray that you would consider further the outcome of David's conduct and consider his faith, especially in regard to his heart for God, for his glory. That's a faith worth following. And the next verse says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The very context of seeing others whose faith is worthy of example. So join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and this, this example of David's life. What a, what a man full of energy and skill, and yet so 
so humble before you, even though he stumbled. Yet he longed for you, for your glory. And he always sought you out. I pray, Lord, that you would oppress upon us not only the, the good example this is, but you would stir in us desire. A desire that would consume us, that would, a zeal for your house. It consumed, Lord, you when you were here. But we also see that in the life of David. And we take heart that even with all the mistakes that he made, all the ways in which he stumbled, all the, all the missing of the mark and the consequences of it, it did not need to keep him. And it did not keep David from being a man after your own heart. And I pray we would take heart and seek your face with all our heart. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.